Welcome to the Spirit Seeker Hour. Spirit Seeker Hour is your chance to delve into the world of your inner spirit. The Spirit Seeker Hour is brought to you by Spirit Seeker Magazine. Go to www.spiritseeker.com to find out more. And now, here's Cindy Meyer. Hello and welcome. And it is indeed my pleasure to bring this show to you each and every week interviewing authors, musicians, um, people who work with the mind, body, and spirit in a multitude of ways, making the world a better place, helping us create more inner peace, more outer peace, and just really just be a little more joyous, to um, to put it in a nutshell. That's a succinct way. And this show is brought to you by Spirit Seeker Magazine. I've been publishing... Spirit Seeker for over 15 years. You can find it in most Whole Foods throughout the Midwest and uh, yoga studios we partner with and all kinds of other locations. And each month there are different articles. This month we have uh, an article about the different archetypes that play out uh, by Carolyn Mace. We have some heart health recipes because this is, you know, February is Heart Health Month. We have an article, Improve Your Love Life with Feng Shui, Rewire Your Brain for Love, 10 Natural Immune Boosters, there are Valentine's Poems and Sayings, and then each issue we have the complete list of the different radio show guests that we will be interviewing throughout the month. And I just want to mention that you can support the show in uh, several ways. Number one is to like us on the Blog Talk Radio dot com forward slash Cindy Meyer, which is C Y N D E M E Y E R. And if you like us, what it does is it just lets the the powers to be at Blog Talk know that people are really liking the show. They can tell when you're listening, of course, you know, with all the internet facing and all that, but it just really helps them. Uh, know that people really like the show. The other thing is, is if you want to receive an email uh, notification of the different shows and other events throughout the U.S. that uh, support your mind, body, and spirit, please send an email to info at spiritseeker.com requesting uh, to be added to the Sacrosanct email list, and we will send you uh, a notice when the magazine's online and when these different events uh, are happening. We do not sell our list, but we do allow other people to uh, let our email Spirit Seeker friends know of other events. Okay, so blah, 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 that's enough of all that. Now we get to the fun stuff. Today, I am uh, interviewing Meadow Lynn, who is the co-author of a book called The Mystic Cookbook, The Secret Alchemy of Food. And this is a treasure, treasure, treasure cookbook that everyone, I I think, should have a copy of this. It's a provocative and um, insightful, eclectic, inspiring book. It's not just about the food. It's about the whole attitude towards food and nourishment and, you know, spiritual awakening that comes from creating in the kitchen. Um, So, Meadow, are you there? Thank you. It's such a joy to be here. Well, and you have such an interesting background. Um, You know, I I just would like to hear, I know you have your own food blog, you have all kinds of things you're doing with food and nourishment. I really like to add the word nourishment because that comes with everything you're doing. Um, And you're, you're really, you know, at one with nature. So let's just hear how this whole journey started, and then I'll ask you questions here and there. Okay. Well, I... We have to go way back to the very beginning of time, pretty much. <laughs> well, beginning of my personal timeline. <laughs> yes. That um, I've been fascinated and in love with cooking and eating pretty much since since I was born. I remember making my first dish when I was three years old, 
remember going into the dining room and grabbing a chair and dragging it into the kitchen because I was too short to get into the cupboards. So I had to use the chair to climb up and pull out random items to combine and concoct and make my first dish, which was um, something I, in later years, I learned how to better name recipes. At that time, I called them tahini balls. And it was a um, blending of tahini and some cocoa powder and honey, maybe a little peanut butter. And then I rolled them in coconut and pass them around to my parents. I was three years old, you know, but I put them on a plate, pass them around kind of like cocktail party style. And my mom reminds me that, or, you know, tells me, I don't remember it, but when I was just over a year old, like, you know, it was the 70s, my parents liked to sit by the fire, eat on the floor. And I would insist that we sat at the table with a full table setting. And that was really, you know, even from, you know, just just a baby, it was very important to me, not just what I ate, but how I ate. And that has really kind of followed me through my life. And my mom and I have um, worked together in many different capacities. This was a big collaboration together on this book. And we wanted to to kind of combine our, our joint passions. And we've been um, so I, I don't know if you mentioned that we co-authored the book together with my mom, Denise Lynn. And um, when I was 18, I started catering the retreats that she led at our ranch. And we started to see that people were having big transformational shifts in their life, not just from the inner work they were doing in, in the class, but because we made mealtimes a joy and celebration and because we infused the food with love, because I'm so passionate about cooking, it's hard not for that to kind of feed into the food. And when we set the table, if it's a Mexican meal, we'll set the buffet with serapes and piñatas. And, you know, I think my mom even has a carved cactus, you know, and chili lights and set the music and the tone and use different dishes and plates to make it all part of that theme, to make it really about that celebration of community of all the people that we're eating with, but also making the food really into an event, to an experience. And it, it has been remarkable so we wanted to kind of harness all of that and and share with others what what we've learned on this journey well and i want to interject just a little bit here for, for listeners if you're wondering who is her wonderful mother who encouraged her to make these little sesame tahini um you know meatballs and serve them and and play like this her mother uh meadow's mother is denise lynn and i uh, met your mother um initially through feng shui my you know i'm a feng shui consultant but then I remember I was at a conference and I took one of her classes on soul coaching and I thought, oh my goodness. And so, you know, Denise, uh, Denise Lynn, Meadow's mother, is known for her, for her deep, deep work with helping people create sacred space and work with the fragments of their soul and, you know, past life you know, experiences and how to, what I love about her work is not focusing necessarily on back there, but okay, now get back to here and how can we take that information here. So these retreats that um, Meta was talking about are very, very deep, very personal soul journey retreats. And then to, I mean, I can just see you totally taking what your mom's doing, you coming in the back door, like surrounding the ambiance of everything and you two co-creating together I can totally see this <laughs> well, it's been fun and I started when I was 18 years old wow. and so you know it's been fun to kind of see over the past 18 or so years as I've been doing it in the summers I was a um, 
well, for a while I was in school and then I was a school teacher. So, but in the summers I would do it. And it's been fun to see the journey that I've been through too and how I've grown and changed in the kitchen. But, you know, it was really fun when I was 18. I worked with this other woman. We'd take the soup spoons and the the salad tongs, and we'd pretend they were microphones, and we would dance and sing over the food. And and at that point, it was a very very rustic small kitchen we were working in. So the food was pretty simple, but people would always say, you know, this is some of the best whatever I've ever had. I think really, you know, this is pretty simple. But it was remarkable that people really could taste that joy, that fun, that exuberance that we were experiencing, and it went into the food. Right. We once had a restaurant in St. Louis. Uh, it was actually called the World Cafe, and you know now the lady isn't a shy monk and has gone on to other things. But she had her own chocolate. Um, White Crow Chocolate Productions and then this World Cafe and every single person who worked in her kitchen was a Reiki Master teacher or a Reiki Master at least. And so they infused the food with the Reiki which, you know, what I'm hearing from everything that I've read in this cookbook and, you know, just the little bit I've experienced just the few moments we've been here is you are uh, infusing the food with love. Very much so. And it's not necessarily something that I've always done consciously. You know, now that that I've been talking about it more and we wrote about it in the cookbook, I do it more intentionally. But it's something that happens almost in spite of ourselves. You know, you'll hear someone wax lyrical about grandma's apple pie. And I'm sure grandma makes a really good apple pie. But there's more to it. It's that grandma naturally puts her love and her her joy into that pie and it it is nourishing and satisfying for the family on a way that that somebody else's apple pie wouldn't necessarily be even though she's not consciously saying i'm putting love into this pie it just is a natural it just you know naturally kind of flows out of her hands and into the food so i'm going to read just um a short short you know like one paragraph from chapter one and the chapter one is entitled eating your way to a deliciously enlightened life So here we go. Simply put, food is much more than, well, just food. It's surprising, but it's true. You really can eat your way to a deliciously enlightened life. When we think of a spiritual path, we often envision meditation, yoga, fasting, chanting, or prayer. We don't usually consider our everyday meals as a potential gateway to mystical transformation. Yet the food you you eat and your approach to it can be one of the most powerful pathways to spiritual renewal. So let's talk about that just a little bit because, you know, you you have a quote from uh, Albert Einstein uh, talking about the innate consciousness in your food. And so so this journey, I mean, you've studied in France. You've studied, it looks like, I mean, you know, there's, I don't know if all, you've been to all of the places, but you, if you haven't been to Saigon, you capture it. <laughs> <laughs> so well, and that's one of the most, and this is actually not answering your other question, but I'll jump ahead and then jump back. But okay. that's one of the remarkable things. And in the book we have, as you said, legendary meals where you can travel to Saigon or North Africa or, you know, back into the time of the Maya. And what's so fun with creating these meals that are experiences, and they can be really elaborate, multi-day affairs, or they can be very, very simple. But you don't have... I mean, traveling is one of my favorite things to do, but you can create these experiences and never leave home. I actually have not been to Saigon, but I love eating Vietnamese food, and I I have lots of cookbooks, and I, I love learning about it and tasting and comparing the flavors. 
And so you can travel from the comfort of your own dining room by creating these full-body experiences with your word, with the flavors, the aromas, the scents, and create these full-body sensory experiences. And as you can tell, I'm getting excited. <laughs> and I have, yes. been, I have been to many of the places that, that we write about in the book and many of the recipes that are from places that I have traveled to, but it's not <clears> – <throat> necessary you know not everybody has the ability or time to travel and it's you know now you can you can travel across the 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 world or through time simply through your meals and you don't even have to get a passport or go through one of those body scanners (laughs) (laughs) that is true that is true so so let's talk about um you know, there's just so many things like I wouldn't ask you about, but one of them when you were um, working with a pyramid in the kitchen. I guess actually maybe this was your mom. Yes. <laughs> and um, uh, see, I was trying to see if I could work that into your initial question about the what you read from the book, but I'll answer the pyramid, and then we can jump back to the other question. <laughs> However but, you um, want, or we can go with the go, go back. No, let's, and then let's go with the pyramid. It's interesting. I was pretty skeptical. I have to admit, I for a while I was arguing against the pyramid in the book because to me it seemed way too out there. <laughs> so of course I asked you about it. <laughs> no, but that's what's interesting, and that's what what's so fascinating is there is empirical evidence to show that it works. And for the listeners who don't know what we're talking about, there has been. A number of studies that when you put food underneath a pyramid, and it can be created from copper wire or even straws, you know, like, um, you know, the ones you get in your soda. It can be created out of any material. It helps if it follows the same dimensions of the pyramids in Egypt. For some reason, when you put it over your food, it's supposed to mellow the flavors if something's really kind of piquant. And it decays less quickly. And there's scientists that started looking at this because a number of years ago they started to notice when they went into these pyramids in Egypt that the things underneath the pyramids were preserved. They were not decayed. Even items in trash bins, so we're not just talking about mummies here, but just things from tourists, the trash bins that were full of junk, (laughs) It was preserved, and it would last for a long time under the pyramid. It wasn't decayed. And so then these people started studying with it, using milk and fresh fruits and vegetables on their kitchen counter and seeing that actually the food decayed less quickly. So my mom decided to test it out. My dad gave her a bit of a hard time, but remarkably it did work. The fruit she put under the pyramid, and she's tried it many times, it lasts longer and it decays less quickly. So, you know, it's one of many things in the book, but there are little things that you can do that can have a big impact in your kitchen. Well, and this is the alchemy part of it. Very much so. And there's so many factors that blend into the alchemy of food. And, you know, anytime we walk into our kitchen, there is a certain form of alchemy that happens. That, you know, the alchemists of yore, although they weren't successful in turning base metals into gold they were on something this idea that the ordinary can come extraordinary and by simply by taking different ingredients and blending them together in your kitchen and flooding them with that love and joy and happiness we were talking about before or or you know maybe you crank up the tunes and it's not necessarily love you're putting into it but you're putting like powerful vigorous energy whatever it is or intentions or affirmations that all blends into the food 
And then, you know, on a chemical level, on a physical level, it really does change. If, you you know, you're take, making a ratatouille, you know, a southern French vegetable stew, and you're mixing eggplants and zucchinis and peppers and onions and garlic, each of those ingredients is really good on their own. But when you blend them together, they're even better. It's more than the sum of their parts, and that's where the alchemy comes to play. Well, and I, here's another quote from, from Meadow. Uh, and she just talked about it, but I'm going to just read this because it really just puts it all together here. In between basting a roast and tossing a salad, sometimes I crank up the volume of a favorite tune and serenade the soups and stocks while I get my groove on with the <laughs> vegetables and pastries. There's nothing more uplifting than singing and dancing with glee and absolute abandon while cooking. Plus, those who eat the food can feel all those good feelings. And it's true, you know, and I... You know, you spend all day at your computer, you sit in traffic, and you've got all these things going on in your life, and just, rah, rah, rah. you know, then you go in and then you're hungry and just grab something to eat. Often that kind of, rah, 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 you know, that energy goes into the food. But if you take that time, some, all you have to do sometimes is turn on some music and it starts to, you know, and you've talked about the feng shui and the space clearing. It's the same idea. You know, it gets that energy flow, that chi flowing through your kitchen and changes your mood and the energy of your kitchen, and it will uplift that energy and then go into the food. Plus, it's, it's fun. So, you know, this is this is such a special cookbook. This uh, there are affirmations, there are mantras, there are, you know, we already talked about the, the pyramid. There are... Um, Let's talk about connecting with the um, your your kitchen angel. You know, and that's interesting. So a number of years ago, I was just a little kind of kid, and I actually saw an angel in a park eating, of all things. Most people wouldn't connect angels with um, doing such mundane tasks, but I think it's interesting that food has always been such a passion for me, so that the one time when I saw an angel... He would be eating. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then that, that window closed. And, you know, as a very young kid, I was encouraged by my mom, you know, go look, seek it out, see what you see. But then, you know, as you grow older, that window kind of closed. I wanted to fit in at school. I wanted to be normal. I wanted to be like the other kids. I shopped at the Gap, you know. <laughs> right. And and as I said, I've been doing these catering, these retreats for many years. And sometimes I would accomplish a feat that I really didn't know how it was even physically possible because usually I'm cooking for about 20 to 25 people in a very small kitchen by myself and I try to do multiple courses and I do three meals a day and two snacks and each meal has many different courses and it's for nine days to 14 days. So it's, it's pretty intense. And I would, and I'd, people say, well, how did you do it? And I think, I, I don't know. <laughs> and so for a while I would joke that, oh, I, I must I have a kitchen angel. And, you know, it was almost tongue-in-cheek. But there was a little part of me that thought, there's got to be some sort of divine help here. And not too long ago, I decided to consciously invoke the aid of my kitchen angel. And so I was in a bit of a bind. I was cooking for one of these events, 25 people. I'd only left myself two hours to make five course Vietnamese meal and it was middle of summer it was very hot 
and there was very little time left. I think it was about an hour left till it was time to serve, and I was still trying to peel the winter squash. I was making a red, uh, red coconut curry, and squash takes a long time to cook, but I was still peeling it. It takes a long time to peel, too, and I hadn't gotten the rice in the rice maker. I hadn't even started on the salad. I was still cutting the vegetables for a stir-fry, you know, and, and I was panicking because I really pride myself on getting the meals out on time so I asked my kitchen angel to help me and this was what happened the clock stopped and there's still part of me that's a little skeptical but it happened the clock stopped moving so I finished peeling the winter squash I got the curry on the stove I chopped the vegetables started the stir fry got the rice in the rice maker got it cooking started doing the the you know, washing the lettuce for the salad and then as I was finally able to take a deep breath and relax and feel like, okay, I'm an, I'm, I might make it, <laughs> the clock started again. And then about 15 minutes or so before it was time to serve, three or four of the women from the retreat showed up in the kitchen and said, we're here to help. What, what do you want us to do? And they helped me get the final bits finished so that we could get it all out exactly on time. And I feel as though my kitchen angel came divinely for that first bit and then also sent in these these earthly angels to help with the final bits where I needed extra hands and in that moment I realized the power of the kitchen angel and so even though I may have been saying it a bit tongue-in-cheek before it really he really does help and it really can be a powerful ally in the kitchen so in the Mystic Cookbook, we talk about how you can invite a kitchen angel into your life. You can even, you know, hang a little angel in your kitchen to be a reminder. And on our website, themysticcookbook.com, if you join our newsletter, you can get a MP3 of a meditation that my mom does to actually call forth a kitchen angel into your life. You know, the story, such as the one you just shared, um, you know, when you when you tap into you know, kitchen angels and the higher deities that support the work we're doing. You know, it's just amazing these miracles that happen. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take a very quick moment to share a story. It was not exactly that, but of course, similar. I, I hosted 27 holistic conferences in St. Louis in 15 years. <clears throat> wow. <laughs> I know, so you get it. And, you know, you have anywhere from 70 to 80 exhibitors and keynote speakers and so many things. And I had this teacher from India that uh, was going to come, and he was going to teach uh, a lecture on karma, karma busting. And so he he had requested that I have 100 lemons for um, an exercise that we were going to learn with the 100 students that were pre-registered for this class. So that morning, the hotel told me, oh, oh, we had to have blue carnations, blue carnations. So that morning, the hotel said, we can't find your blue carnations. I said, but they were delivered yesterday. The florist called and confirmed that they were delivered. And he said, well, I'm sorry. We've looked everywhere. We cannot find the blue carnations. So here I am. It's like 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, and this lecture is starting at 11. And I just flipped out, and some volunteer <laughs> in Chicago said, what can I do to help? Just showed up. What can I do to help? I said, I'll tell you exactly what you can do to help. You can help me find a florist who on a Sunday morning is going to uh, dye 100 carnations blue and have them here by such and such time. I think the, I think actually <laughs> the lecture was the one. But you get the general picture. I had, right. you know, my friend owned a produce company and had the most beautiful 100 lemons. And so all of this works. So, so we get these carnations delivered. 
And then right before the lecture starts, the hotel says, oh, we found your 100 blue carnations. <laughs> now I had 200 blue carnations and 100 lemons. Then the teacher from India arrives, and, he, and he, he's so sweet, this tiny, powerful man, and he says, what am I teaching today? I said, oh, you were teaching karma-busting techniques. And he said, how long do I have? And I told him, he says, oh, there's no way I can do that in that time. And I looked at him, and I said, but I have the lemons and carnations. And he says, I'm sorry, we won't be needing them, but there's no way to do that lecture in that time. I'm sorry <laughs> for the confusion from my staff. And I just sat there, and you know how it is. You just, like, in the moment, you surrender, and okay. So then we're all in this room. He's in total silence for the first five minutes. And what I realized later, he was doing a time decompression mantra. He did a time decompression. And the next thing you know, he delivered a two-and-a-half-hour seminar in one-and-a-half hours. Not only did we use the lemons and the blue flowers, but the extra 100 blue flowers that were blessed by this whole deal were then taken by the volunteers into all the exhibitors who were in the lecture hall, you know, or the exhibit hall, rather, it couldn't be there, and they all had the, the blessing of what happened. Oh, wow. Now, is there a higher hand in all this? You better believe it. <laughs> and that's what alchemy is all about. And you capture, you and your mother capture that in this book. Oh, wow. Thank you. What a beautiful story. Oh, my goodness. You know, I mean, but can't you just, you know, when you tell the average person the clock stopped in the kitchen and everything magically flowed, and then when it was all ready to, like, come to fruition, then the clock started again. I mean, most people are like, what? But that's how it works. That's the beauty of kitchen angels when they come down to earth to help us and then the and then oh we think she needs three more people to just help her let's send some more little earth angels to her <laughs> i know it was pretty remarkable it really it made me a believer <laughs> oh my gosh so meadow you have you have been a school teacher you have um you know you've been in france you know with theater i mean did you learn to cook in france too or was it mainly um you know the creative different different creative aspect of your life well, when I was getting my master's degree in France in French cultural studies, I wrote my thesis on the history and sociology of eating in France. And I did imagine there would be more empirical research. Unfortunately, most of it was spent in the library. <laughs> but I did get to look at it from an academic point of view. But most of my time spent in France was either academic or eating out. <laughs> Wow. But um, so I've kind of come at it from both directions. So, and there is so much to learn from the way that the French and Europeans in general, but especially French, approach their meals. That it seems, unfortunately, we've really started to lose here in this country. They did a study that we mentioned in the Mystic Cookbook at the University of Pennsylvania in the psychology department, where they asked French women to describe describe chocolate cake. And they used the word celebration. And the American women said guilt. And when they did it with an egg, the French woman said meal. And the American women said cholesterol. That, you know, unfortunately here we've lost that. We don't have the mind-body-spirit connection to our meals. We've lost the that spiritual component. Food feeds our physical appetites here and sometimes our emotional ones, but um, but we've lost that other component of the, com the community and the fact that it does go beyond simple calories and fuel. You know, food isn't just made up of what's on that nutrition label. 
you know, physically it is, but it also, our beliefs, our past experiences, our associations, the love we talked about before, all of that goes into it. And, you know, in France, there is a sense that food is about community and conviviality and breaking bread with others that we, unfortunately, we don't, we don't have here. We eat in our cars, we eat, you know, standing in front of the refrigerator, we we ply our children with with cookies and sweets to make them be quiet. <laughs> you know, it's and true. You know, it's, it's very interesting. There's actually a very interesting book called French Kids Eat Everything, written by a Canadian woman who's married to a French man, and they spent a year or so living in a small village in France with their young children. And it was a journey for her to see how different it was that French children are raised, but French children. Are, they they love beets. They love Brussels sprouts because it's part of their culture that families eat together and children are exposed to different foods. They say that it takes a child 9 to 15 times to try a new food. If they originally didn't like it, if they try it 9 to 15 times again, they will eventually like it. But unfortunately here, it's, oh, nope, you don't like it. Okay, here's some, you know, here's some ketchup. <laughs> Let's move on. How interesting that it's the, uh, I just have never heard that, but it's almost like homeopathy, you know, like your body needs to like build up to it. I, maybe this is the wrong way to look at this, but, but you know, children naturally, you can see them, especially, you know, when they're little infants, sometimes they'll just spit things out, you know, but, but I guess if you just keep at it and like exposing them to, you know, and seeing that others are enjoying that tasting of that same food. I mean, I have never heard the nine to 15 times of exposure, but that yeah, isn't that, isn't that fascinating? And it's, it's actually built into the French culture that it's, they have, professional chefs that run their even the dining rooms in their their preschools and they have dining rooms in their preschools and it's they send out a menu every month to the families and it's part of the curriculum is teaching children how to eat and what to enjoy and that food is meant to be enjoyed and they will sit down with the children at, and teach them manners and make them try everything you know, they don't have to like it they don't have to eat it all but they have to try everything and it's very different from the way we approach food here that's, I mean, that's just fascinating. That alone in and of itself would be, you know, an article. <laughs> <laughs> the difference in, because American children now more than ever with the way things are done, it's just, you know, unless you have uh, parents who are eclectic and, you know, such as you grew up with and, you know, I, I mean, we grew up with six kids and it was just like this big deal just to like whip through the dinner. You know, it was like, oh my gosh. You know, it was a whirlwind, and and I remember the first time I created a Thanksgiving dinner and had some of my spiritual friends over. Thanksgiving, there went my brothers who were now adults. They that's the way they ate. Zoom and off to the football game, and we were just sitting there like, what just happened? And I said, well, now the real Thanksgiving meal can begin. <laughs> it was just, you know, but I grew up with just rushing sports every night and all these other things. And, and then my mom, uh, my mom's sister married a man from Italy. And all of a sudden we were having spaghetti and meatballs and sozitsa. And like, we, you know, I was so grateful we had this different different food that came across, you know, the the radar in our household instead of just typical American food. (laughs) (laughs) And when you eat like the, you know, the typical Italian way or the French way, there is more, and we talk about this in the Mystic Cookbook as well, more recognition of the food itself, the people at your table too, but the food, the flavors, the textures, and where that food came from. 
know, the provenance is very important in countries like Italy and France, that it's not just a roast chicken. It will say you know, on a menu or in a family or in the grocery store, this is a roast chicken from the town of Bresse. You know, it's from a specific region. It's from a specific area. That aura of place is very important. And in France, they talk about terroir. But, you know, in the Mystic Cookbook, we talk about this idea that the place that something comes from, that land, the energy, the the winds, the sun, the the soil, the stones, the history, the people who've worked there, it all gives a certain aura to the food and creates this unique quality that makes it special to that area. And that, you know, when you do spend time thinking about the food or sitting down or maybe saying grace and thinking about the place the food has come from, the people who planted those seeds and and tended to the plants and harvested them and brought them to market and the person who cooked the food, so often we eat so quickly that we forget that there's an entire process that brings that food to us, that it doesn't just arrive. Even, you know, even processed foods have gone through a journey. Right. So, so you know, one of the um, the chapters is um, about Arabian dreams and activating your inner mysteries. And so uh, what Meadow is sharing is that, you know, each chapter has these amazing pictures you know, like of the Middle East and, and um, you know, the archways and the mountains and the lamps and um, all, of, you know, the Kasbah and all this. And then and then Moroccan spice kefta, meatballs with cinnamon. And then it'll, it'll give you a little description, uh, such as lamb is more traditional in Moroccan cooking. However, I prefer turkey. Experiment to see which you like better. I've also had good success making the, uh, this dish vegetarian by substituting crumbled firm tofu. You may need to add an additional egg to make it stick together, and you'll need to squeeze firmly to form the vegetarian meatballs served with um, raita. Yeah, raita. Raita, okay. And mm-hmm. then uh, it goes on to then give you the recipe for um Right, which is yogurt and cucumber uh, sauce, which is similar to the Israeli, or I'm sorry, Greek tzatziki. Yeah, I used to own a uh, Middle Eastern restaurant, and we used to make, um, I didn't realize it was from Greece, but we would have tzatziki served with a lot of the other spicy things. And then, of course, you have harosa in here. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so, but, you know, but but each thing goes like the Tunisian with harosa, the Tunisian chili paste is a delicious, delicious accompaniment to any Arabian um, dreams meal. And, you know, you say just as in the U.S., you know, that we have ketchup, but it's totally different <laughs> than, than ketchup. My my friend makes this, um, oh, what is it called? It's called a, um, oh, my gosh, I'm drawing a complete blank on it. But it's, it's a Moroccan, it has couscous and fish and what is it called? It's in the, it doesn't matter. But it's but the main thing is is that the harous is served with it and it's like a perfect accompaniment. It's like a cassoulet, cassoulet. Mm-hmm. So you know each. So it's not just the recipes. This is what I want people to get. You are not just getting the recipe. You're getting the whole feel of it. Like the Arabian chop salad. The, it talks about the cuisines of North Africa and the Middle East relying heavily on the use of fresh herbs. And then it goes into what fresh herbs. But then, you know, what I really like is that if, you know, you say if you don't want to use lamb, you can use turkey. If you don't want to use turkey, you can use tofu. I mean, you really just make so many suggestions. Oh, thank you. And you're making me hungry (laughs) reading my own recipes because I know exactly how they taste. 
Oh, my gosh. It's oh, I love that recipe. And what's fun about that, that falls in a chapter that we're talking about called Legendary Meals. And this is kind of the culmination of the book. We talk about the book being this mystic chef apprenticeship, that there are many different steps and activities and things that you can do that we we suggest throughout the book to bring more spirit, more joy, more love into your cooking and eating and more more mindfulness and meaning as well. But then it culminates in this idea of these legendary meals. And as I said, they can be very simple. We have a suggestion for one, a storybook meal you can do with your ch- children where you um, serve porridge or you know, oatmeal and reenact the story of the three bears and Goldilocks. You know, it can be very simple, but it can really create lasting memories for your children. Or you can create, you know, this Arabian Dreams meal and travel the globe, travel through time periods and from the food itself, but also from, you know, you can get really elaborate if you want, but you don't have to. You know, you could get different wall coverings to, you know, hang on the walls and get cushions and eat on the floor and eat with your fingers and run your fingers under rose water to wash them before you eat and play traditional music and fill the air with frankincense and myrrh. As I said, it becomes more than a meal. It becomes an experience. And one thing that you can do that's really fun, too, is you can even, if you're doing it as a dinner party and your guests are amenable to this idea, you can have them close their eyes before they eat. And I do this at our um, retreats. And I have them picture that they are in North Africa. And I describe the scene. You know, you've got a, a pungent olive in your mouth and you're smelling the the you know the cumin scented breads in the oven and your smell i don't know caraway probably is a better spice anyway you know and you're you create that scene with words and and you tell people what they're seeing what they're feeling and it deepens that experience and as i said you can travel from the comfort of your dining room and it really can create this this deeper deeper meaningful meal that you can tap into that wellspring where you can open your inner mysteries you know what what are your inner mysteries what what are you wanting to share with others what's hidden below and then you eat the food and it becomes more than simply a meal well and you talk about the seasons you know which i can remember being um you know studying macrobiotics years ago and then you know where they're like you only eat things that are indigenous to your culture and you know anna marie coben you know the whole foods and all that and i just love how you have brought in the the five elements as well as the four seasons so let's let's just talk about you know how it um how it is that we embrace the seasons in our cooking and it's interesting with the seasons because there's kind of there's two sides to what we write about in the book that there is eating seasonally which can be you know one you're eating foods that are in in well when they're in season they're fresher they tend to be local they tend to be have more nutrients and be of higher quality it's you know less carbon footprint on on our environment but then there's the energetic side of seasonal eating and in that you can actually eat out of season <laughs> and i'll explain it why in a minute but each season has its own its own energy and unfortunately in our current modern culture we we're separate from that we we sit in our you know heated and air conditioned homes and cars and we we drive from our you know garages underneath our you know apartment buildings to another garage inside our office buildings where it's constantly climate controlled you know we are not really aware of the cycles of time and nature but each season has its own energy 
you know, summer is expansive. It's like standing on a mountain and throwing your arms wide and everything's possible. You know, and autumn is that time of harvest and cornucopia and abundance. And winter's that time when you just kind of pull inward and restore those inner coffers that, you know, we, we're always go, 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 go these times. But traditionally, the seasons, the winter is that time when you like that bear who hibernates you rest and you pull inward you know in the spring is that time of new beginnings and planting seeds that you will later reap so sometimes there can be value in creating a seasonal meal that's completely out of season if you need to that energy you know say it's the middle of summer and you've been giving 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 and you really need that time to pull inward you might create and we we have instructions for doing this in the book a winter meal that nurturing, wholesome, hearty food that, you know, that helps you kind of relax and restore and come inward. Or you can, you know, maybe you're starting a new project at work and you need to to give rise to that, that energy of new beginnings. You might create a spring meal. Maybe it's, you know, we have some recipe options in the Mystic Cookbook. You know, maybe it's tender young greens, or maybe it's ramps and fiddleheads, or maybe it's egg salad or spring lamb or, you know, whatever it is to you that feels that, that has that spring energy to honor those new beginnings. But as I said, there's also a lot of great power in eating in season, what is fresh and local in that time period. It's just a fabulous, fabulous cookbook. The pictures are beautiful. I mean, just the whole, the whole thing. You know, you have how to how to invite prosperity and table uh, table settings is uh, you know like many altars. Like how to actually bring and infuse every bit from start to finish with um, with these you know this wonderful spiritual approach to life. You there is feng shui in this book. You know. Um, and talking about what clutter does, you know, to the kitchen. <laughs> and, of course, you know, anyone who's been a cook, you know, when I when I heard you describing the many retreats in the small kitchen, creating three meals a day, several courses and snacks in between from a small kitchen for 20, what did you say, 28 people or something? It was just like... 20 to 25 people usually. Right. So, I mean, yeah. you have to be so, like... I mean, I can remember as a kid, I was the only girl, and I loved to cook, and my stuff father would come into the kitchen and just almost like faint and I <laughs> I would say I will clean it up just go away go away you know it'll all be clean when I'm finished but really the true trick is really to to kind of stay right with it isn't it when I'm when I am cooking professionally I do I have to stay right with it I do one task I wash the next dish then I do something else and I wash it Unfortunately, I'm not as disciplined in my own home, and my kitchen in my own home is even smaller, which I always think is potentially inspiring for anybody who says, I can't cook for myself because I don't have space or I don't have a kitchen. I have about mm, maybe two feet square counter space in my kitchen, and I use that to write and test the recipes in this book. So it is possible, but I do frequently get too much clutter the dishes don't get done in my kitchen and they sit for a little longer than they should and what's remarkable i've noticed and we write about you know the power of clutter clearing and feng shui of your kitchen is i'll find myself getting grumpy or feeling like 
my life is terrible. What's wrong with me? Well, you know, <laughs> and you know how it starts to spiral. It can start with one thing, and then it grows into the next thing, and pretty soon, you know, my life is the worst life ever. You know, it kind of spirals. And I've started to notice that there's almost always a correlation with my dirty kitchen and my downward spiraling mood. And as much as we don't necessarily want to, you know, feel we feel like we're individuals, we are our own beings, but many of us identify very closely and intensely with our home. Our home is our identity. And the kitchen is this, you know, this hearth of yore. You know, a long time ago it was this, the heart of the home where the families gathered around the fire. And now we don't have the, you know, the fire, but people still gather in the kitchen. It really is that center, that heart of the home. And for many of us, we're closely connected to that. So for me, when that energy gets stagnant in the kitchen, the energy in my life gets stagnant. I clean the dishes, suddenly that life that seems so terrible, now it's like, I am so awesome. And simply all I did was wash the dishes. Well, and you know, those are the dishes. You know, in feng shui, one of the, the big tenets with the kitchen is to keep the stove top clean. And you know, you think, where did all this come from? But then when you do it, you just, you have what exactly what you just described, this opening. Okay, but let's start off with this blog, because I have been following your blog now since I knew I was going to be interviewing you. And I mean, you put recipes and just fun things about what's happening in your life, and you bring all of this into this. So let's let's talk about this, because... You know, I love the name Savor the Day. I mean, how how long have you been doing your blog? I think three years. It's shocking wow. to me. Time goes, goes by so fast. <laughs> and wow. it's been fun. Recently, I went back and I read through all the archives. I'm preparing for a Hay House I Can Do It talk I'm giving next month. And I was looking for some inspiration from, from myself. I've <laughs> been reading through the archives. And it was really fun to see that, you know, just the transformation that I personally have gone through in the past three years. My blog is really it's the most personal of all the, you know, we mentioned the three different websites. It's, it's really the most personal one. It's, I'm, I tend not to be a very vulnerable person in real life, but in my blog, it's been, it's been a journey as I've really been opening up and I'm much more vulnerable and open and honest there than I am in, in, in real life. So it's, I mean, it is my real life, but, you know, in writing, it's different than when you're talking with people. And it's been a wonderful journey to really share that and open up with others. And it really is, you know, it's my personal journey about looking for love and being passionate about food and eating and other things that happen in my life. And as you said, there's always recipes. There's always a recipe that I weave in with the other stories. Well, and you are, you are very... um open in your blog like this one this one part similar to what you're just talking about is you know i i needed these talking about finding the perfect ideal mate and all that and then you're saying you know i needed these years to become myself first i feel as though i've been in a chrysalis stage and i'm just now ready to emerge from my cocoon and then it goes on and on about you know intuitive laziness and procrastination but then all of a sudden you segue right into, okay, I love to go grocery shopping, but sometimes I even put that off. So then I create from what I have. And I love this eggs and veggie dish. <laughs> oh, it's so good. And, you know, it is so easy to make. There's a similar recipe in the Mystic Cookbook called um, Leafy Greens Bird's Nests. And what's fun is you can make it from whatever you have, any vegetables you have pretty much that, that are vegetables that are taste good cooked. I wouldn't necessarily use 
celery, let's say. I mean, celery is good in soup, but I wouldn't eat celery with my eggs necessarily. So I should okay, I'm digressing. But any <laughs> vegetables that are good cooked and taste good with eggs, whatever you have, you saute them in a pan. I like using kale or chard. Leeks are delicious too. I have that's part of the recipe that's in the book. Or leftover roasted potatoes or broccoli. Anything you have, I've even used spaghetti. And then you crack an egg on top and cover it until that egg sets and it is such a delicious breakfast and it's a great way to get more vegetables in your diet too. A lot of breakfast foods tend to be very sugary or carbohydrate laden and it's a great way to get lots of delicious vegetables and um, and it's beautiful and so it looks like a little nest. It's one of my favorite breakfasts. You know, there are just so many things, you know, where we, we have about 10 minutes longer. Um, you have chakra meals. You have how to work with the ant. This is in the cookbook itself. Um, chakra meals, how to align your energy centers. There's a whole thing on how to connect with your ancestors. Um, what, what would you like to share? Because, I mean, I, I want to make sure that... You know, I don't miss something that you're like, why didn't she ask me about that? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness, you are so thorough. I don't know. It's such a joy. There are so many fun aspects of the book that you've touched on right there. And as you said, it's not not just a recipe book. It's really what we've been calling in a lot of ways. It's, It's a cookbook for your life, that there are a lot of tips and suggestions and things that you can do to live more deliciously simply by the way that you approach your meals. And even going back to your very first question that I don't think I ever answered about kind of looking for enlightenment through hardship or challenge or rigorous activities, you know, fasting or or spiritual practice or yoga or, you know, whatever it is, it can also come from joy. You know, the more joy you have, the more there is. The more beauty you see, the more there is. The more beauty you eat, the more there is. And my mom lived in a Zen Buddhist monastery for two and a half years. She sat Shen for up to 16 hours a day, which is you sit in the full or half lotus position and stare at a blank wall. And the monks, if they think that you might possibly be thinking, they hit you with a stick to make you not think. And my mom said, said, you know, in that time, she, she got... It was a wonderful time for her. It, she had had a very tumultuous childhood and youth, and it was really peaceful. And it was the rigor and structure that she needed that she hadn't had before. And, but she she said she didn't get enlightened. You know, it was a great time, but she didn't get enlightened. And it was after all of the hardships of her childhood and going through this that she's realized that you can have just as much growth through joy as through hardship. And it's it seems simple, but it's actually when you realize that it can be very powerful. And I know for me as a child, having grown up with a mom who had such a rough background in childhood, and we don't have time to go into all of that now, but her mom was committed to a, a mental hospital. Her father during that time was sexually abusive. She was shot by by a crazy man, a sexual predator, left for dead on the side of the road. You know, it's it's pretty intense. And I I you know we don't have time to go into all of that, but but she was able to rise above that and become the person she is today as a result of that hardship and those challenges. And for me as a child growing up with that, there were, it seems so embarrassing almost to admit now, 
but I always worried that I would never be as compassionate or as empathetic or as understanding because I hadn't struggled, that my life in comparison is really easy. And the truth is that, you know, if you have challenges and hardship in your life, there can be great power in coming, you know, that comes from rising above that and transformation. It's what put my mom on the path that she's on now. And though it was horrific, she looks back on, you know, and most of it now she wouldn't change because it changed the course of her life. Well, your mom comes from this huge, huge intellectual scientific family that is just like, you know, off the charts with all that. And then here she came with this whole different shamanic path and, and seeking enlightenment. And, you know, and yet look at how much she's, she's changed the, the DNA, RNA of your family. Very, yeah, very much so. And it, and she wouldn't have ended up where she is now had she not had the experiences that she had. But for those who, you know, you don't have to struggle. You don't have to have that. And that's what she's realized, too, that by by eating joyfully, and it seems so minor in comparison, it really can affect all aspects of your life because food is so central to every bit of everyone's life. Even if you don't, you know, there are many people who say they don't really, they're not that into food, which to me is shocking but i know it's true but But you know what a lot of men are that way they just they did not grow up understanding how the kitchen works i mean you know other other men are not that way but it's it's but it's funny i um my older children's father his idea of a meal is to open a can of tuna fish and eat it standing over the sink no that's exactly what the way that you approach your meals whether it's cooking or eating often is an indicator of how you approach your life. You know, so I don't know if that, you know, holds true with your ex-husband, but in many ways, because food is so central to our life, the way that we, you know, whether you make it into a big affair or you eat standing up in front of the refrigerator at the door open, it affects other aspects. Or whether you have strict rules, this is what you can eat and this is what you can't eat, or this is what's good and this is bad, and people who eat this is bad. Many of us have very strong judgments about ourselves and others around food, and that filters into other aspects of your life. Well, and I I have studied neonatal psychology a good part of my life. I've always been fascinated by, okay, what were the decisions made even pre-verbally, you know, like even in your utero, you know, like what, Mm -hmm. you know, I've just been fascinated by this my whole life. And, you know, one of the things that I've studied is bottle-fed babies um, versus breastfed babies on-demand uh, when children are hungry on demand or schedule fed babies like you know and one of the things you know that I have found over and over again is that when a child was fed on a schedule where if they were hungry in between they it didn't matter it is not two o'clock you're not getting that bottle till two o'clock or whatever oftentimes it affects their whole life with the way they look at food and nourishment and it's just fascinating you know in our in our culture how things have just changed so much you know even breastfeeding is when the child's hungry it's ready you don't have to go feed you know heat up formula and all this it's just it's just a different approach um and i think that your book that you've co-created with your mom you know is just this beautiful reintroduction shall we say to like looking at food in a whole different way and and just enjoying enjoying that cooking through enlightened 
thinking. Like, you know, even you know, even one of the pictures in the book, which I just loved, I think it was the chapter on um, prosperity and abundance, where I am in the flow, like putting a little affirmation on the dinner plate as you arrive. There is your perfect little affirmation for this meal. You know, mm-hmm. just, a rem- just a reminder, you know, that that, oh, my, we could just slow down and just be in the flow and not look at the clock for a while. Let's just enjoy this wonderful meal. And, um, you know, when I was in Italy, I mean, it was many years ago, I've, I had never been to a restaurant where just, you know, it was mainly the locals were there. They 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 ordered like similar to what you know the top is the small plates. They would mm-hmm. order, and then they'd enjoy that, and then another whole thing would come. But like small servings, and they were there for hours. Isn't it amazing? And you actually you eat a lot less too because yes. you have time for your body to to taste and digest and talk to the people around you. And it it becomes an evening activity. Here, you know, we go to the theater, we go to the movies, and you race through your meal before, where in France, your meal is your evening activity. Or in Italy, or, you know, in many places around the world. Not not so much in this country. (laughs) Well, my daughter is living in um, Italy now, but she was in Spain for six months before that, and then... I am um, I am coming to visit her, and we have two weeks this summer, and mainly we're going to be in Spain and French Morocco. So I was just looking at all these recipes with, like, even more of a yum, 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 oh, yum. Oh, wow. <laughs> That'll be such a fun trip. Wow. Oh, I know, I know. And, you know, and, and she, she, she uh, you know, she's learned, you know, to eat things, you know, through her mother. I always have, I think because of the way I was raised, I always knew I did not want to eat that way. <laughs> so it was kind of like sometimes, <laughs> sometimes when we know what we do not want, we, we create something different, not not in rebellion necessarily, but just let's try this in a different way. But um, but I looked at the Casablanca carrots, and I'm like, yum, <laughs> Preparing me for Casablanca. <laughs> and what's <laughs> so. wonderful about that recipe and many of the other recipes in the book is it's very simple. You don't need to make your recipes particularly complicated or use hard-to-find ingredients. That can be really fun. That's not the focus of this particular book, but when you have high-quality ingredients and you cook them with love and you mix them together, it creates something divine. That salad, Casablanca carrots, has three ingredients well four if you count the salt but um but it's so delicious you know grated carrots olive oil oh lemon juice okay four five with salt (laughs) lemon juice and fresh mint and people tell me oh i don't like carrot salad and they love that salad and i'm so sorry my chicken must have just laid an egg and she's announcing it i'm not sure i can hear it i can hear it (laughs) it's so funny my my, i have a son who's 15 and he'll say mom will you make those um Brussels sprouts that the ones that say if you hate Brussels sprouts you'll love these <laughs> that's the name of the recipe if you hate Brussels sprouts you'll love these um, I'm going to give all the different websites uh, well actually why don't you give all the different websites because um, I want to make sure I don't miss any there's meadowlin.com which is m-e-a-d-o-w-l-i-n-n.com and then there is the mysticcookbook.com there is actually um, the, the cookbook has its own west website and then savortheday.com is your um, blog, but then also on YouTube, you can do a search for Mystic Cookbook, and you will find um, some YouTube videos as well. Yes, wow, you covered it all. And if you go to um, meadowlin.com, there are links from there to all of the other sites, so that can be an easy way to access it. And on the Mystic Cookbook website, there are 
all the YouTube videos are on that website, but also there are some recipes from the book and some excerpts and some other exciting tidbits. So if you want a little to whet your appetite for the book, I encourage anyone listening to pop on over to the website and have a look. The book's not for sale on the website, but there are links to places where it can be purchased.